Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve. These folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is sound editor turned filmmaker Midge Kostin. Midge worked as a sound and dialogue editor on some of the biggest films of the 90s. Films like Armageddon, Con Air, The Rock, Broken Arrow, or Crimson Tide. She later became a teacher at the University of California, and most recently, she created a brilliant documentary called Making Waves, The Art of Cinematic Sound, which I became aware of when she ran a very successful Kickstarter campaign to finish the film. Making Waves discusses the history and the art of sound design and features interviews with filmmakers like Steven Spielberg or Christopher Nolan, but more to the point, it features dozens of interviews with excellent sound artists like Ben Burt, Walter Murch, Gary Rydstrom, Anna Beelma, Eileen Lee, Cecilia Hall, and many others, taking an in-depth look at scenes from movies like Saving Private Ryan, Star Wars, or Apocalypse Now, and many others. I first contacted Midge because I was writing an article on the documentary for the German professional magazine Film und TV Kamera. In our interview, Midge not only discusses the importance of good sound design and the individual creative roles of the sound artists, she also explains why it took the team nine years to finish the film, why there is such a strong focus on the new Hollywood era, and she discusses the sound design of the documentary itself. If you enjoy my conversation with Mitch Costin, make sure to check out our other interviews at TalkingPicturesPodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and the podcast platform of your choice. So here's Talking Pictures with Mitch Costin. First off, congratulations on a, on a great film. Um, Thank you. I think, I think sound and sound design is a very interesting field that um, doesn't get a lot of attention. So it was really interesting to see a whole documentary focusing on that. Yeah. Um, and it's the kind of film that makes me want to, you know, revisit all of my favorite films and just listen to them. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it really worked in that regard to, yeah, to give an appreciation. Yes, I know. That's what's so funny about the fair use thing. You would think that the studios and that they'd want to have something like this because everybody wants to go and then look at the film, you know. So it's weird, but anyways, but that's how it just, it works, you know. Um, let me shut my email off here so it doesn't keep dinging us here. Um, so yeah, so, so, but I know everybody says that, like, they'd love to go and check out the films again, so it's kind of fun. And um, yeah, it was uh, not easy uh, getting it done. It took us nine years. Some of it is the money. Even Dolby didn't give any money, and um, it's all private donors, and I, as I say, I thank God my sister studied finance instead of film. <laughs> but <laughs> if, it really, if it wasn't for my sister, because a lot of people say, you know, why wasn't it done before? And it's that, well, everybody's kind of busy, you know, when you're working in the industry, the people who could do it. And then, um, and, and, and then it's just like, it's the, you know, what the, what we find out in, in sound is that even, you know, on big feature films, the budget, it's like 1% of the budget on most mm -hmm. films. And, you know, on the big action adventure, it's maybe 3% of the budget. So there's just something. And nowadays, though, people do say, um, oh, sound really matters. So they all say, you know, say, some, say something like that, but then still like, okay, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm just so happy that it's out and that, you know, it's getting the recognition, which means that the sound people are getting recognition. So mm -hmm. It's been really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I didn't know that, that, that it took so long, nine years. Um, so did you keep working on the film and, and collecting interview after interview? Or was yeah, most well, of your time spent just yeah. sort of putting it together? So a lot of the time, the first like three years, we started 2010. And the first three years, we, we would put together these um, uh these videos of other people's interviews and films like, you know, kind of things that um, like how I would lecture. And, um, but so we put, you know, kind of proof of concept trying to get money and then we'd go around and we'd show it and PBS and BBC both were interested and maybe interested in the series. And then it took us so long. Mm -hmm. 
the people we were talking to had retired by the show. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and then it, most of it, and then we did like we did it. Ended up doing a Kickstarter campaign, and that got us like one hundred thirty-five thousand. But I mean, the budget—if we got paid, we paid everybody on the set. Even I insisted on in any kind of interns or PA because they were my students, you know, mm-hmm. and. And you got to pay students, you know, so um, so we paid everybody else, but we didn't pay ourselves. And then some people took, you know, for like credits and things like that, you know, got paid less than they normally would. But I mean, because it's it's over a million dollar budget. But, you know, to make it look good and to give give it the kind of production value that it deserved and everything, you know, with who these people were. Um, and we were hoping it would be around for a long time. So, yeah, so it's um. So it took us, but and we shot most of the interviews from 2013 to 2016. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm very glad that you did the the Kickstarter campaign because that's when I heard about the film. And um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, right. uh, yeah, I was I was one of the backers actually. Yeah, I was very excited to see the film. Yeah. Um, and we. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe I would have read about the film at some point, you know, when it when it comes out. But um, I just I could follow the entire thing, and it was very interesting. Also, to see so much. Um, I think you had over a thousand backers, so a lot of interest in the I film, know. which yeah. is amazing. Yeah, yeah, that was that was really cool, you know. And then I mean that started the whole process of people being interested. So that 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 was good. And, um, you know, and then also in this whole, like, you know, goes around now, we're just trying to get out there. It's a, it's not a great time to be out in theaters because everybody's trying to get their films out for award season. This award Mm -hmm. season thing, holy crap, especially when you're independent. (laughs) It's like, Jesus. But, um, but it's, it's, it's good. I'm really happy. And I love, you know, what I love the most is that the sound community loves it. It makes me teary. Um, mm-hmm. but they really love it. And even if they're not in it, you know, I thought, oh no, I could make enemies. But instead, <laughs> people are just so grateful for it to be out. You know what they all say? Oh, now my, I got to bring my family or my family needs to see it or because they'll understand what I do because people, <laughs> oh, really? I know that in my career, I'd say I was sound editor and people would say, oh, I love the music on such and such. And it was like, oh, that's the one thing I don't deal with is music. But they didn't yeah. know sound, <laughs> sound versus music kind of thing. Yeah. So that was cool. Yeah. In, in terms of sound design, I, I, always, I always think of something a, a musician once told me. Um, so I kind of compare it to being the bassist in a rock band. Because he told me, if you're the bassist in a rock band, you're the most important person in the band, but nobody's ever going to know that. Yeah, <laughs> that's really, that's really a good point. Yeah, I just saw some music last night, and I was thinking about that, kind of, this guy was doing a great job. Also, the drummer was doing a great job. <laughs> mm. So, it's cool. So, why do you think that sound design is such an, I don't know if it's an underrated or uh, profession or if it's just something that people don't pay attention to um, why is yeah that? i think it's how we process sound honestly i think that our brains i think there is they are you know doing all this mri work now and i talked to somebody at the brain institute at usc where i teach and he was saying that um there's like our brain when when you're thinking about camera stuff like i mean visuals uh it 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 um, hits different parts of your brain that you have a consciousness about. And there's still something about sound, how it gets processed, where it's like the, um, just your kind of brainstem, what's the part that's back there, that that is just so, it, it's like you don't intellectualize it. And so I think that it doesn't have awareness. You don't have awareness about it so much. And I really think that it hits us like emotionally, but it's still like, it's almost like lizard brain, you know, and you... You aren't thinking consciously, and but it hits you in your gut, and it hits you, you know, in just like, you know, we react, but um, we don't have a consciousness about it. It's so interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, and in some ways that works for us, because when, then when you're working on a movie, you don't feel manipulated or, you know, it's like we can do all this stuff and people don't... Um, you know, kind of don't, don't think about it. But then another way, it's like people don't think about it. So they have no idea you exist, you know. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, there was one point in the in the variety review. Um, it's a very very good review, and um, I think there was a part where he said, "Well, I know the entire Godfather by heart, and I never ever noticed that sound before Michael uh, shoots his opponent." Right. Yeah, I, I thought that was very interesting. So interesting. Yeah, because when you look at it in just by itself, you say like, uh, "Does this work?" <laughs> I, I didn't think about it, I, I know, when I watched it or whatever. But when you just see that part, you say, wow, and you're conscious of it, you think that's extreme. But yeah. Mm. So and, and the film begins with this uh, segment, where Walter Murch explaining, um, you know, how you make sense of the world through sound at first. Um, I thought a little bit about that. And I was curious, what's the first sound that you remember from your life? Oh, my God, me? Um Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. I don't think I've tried to think. The very first time I heard, um, I don't know, it was probably siblings like yelling or something. <laughs> I'm four out of six. Um, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. But I do know that, you know, I live in, even though I live in L.A., but I live in Topanga Canyon. And one of the reasons I feel like I'm here is that, and recently a treat, like, a year and a half ago, a tree fell on my house and it crashed into one of the rooms and then I had to be out. And here I was in beautiful Santa Monica, you know, and I thought, oh, this is good because when I retire or do it, you know, well, I'll have to get out of the canyon because it's so crazy. But, um, you know, it's, it will be hard as a really old person or whatever. But right now it's like I like to hike as much as I can and, you know, on a daily basis go outside. But what I what I missed when I was gone was the crickets and the frogs. If it rains at all, like I hear the frogs, If but the crickets on a nightly basis because it stays pretty warm here. There's always, you know, crickets. And um, and I really missed that when I when I left and, and was staying in Santa Monica for a month or a couple months. It was um so I, I think just like the sounds of nature, you know, I'm wondering if that was something that I heard. Um, yeah. Oh, I, but I do know something. I do remember that I was, I would be traumatized by the, um, by the vacuum cleaner. It's like when my mother, I really, yeah, I really didn't like that sound when I was a little kid. I'm sure it scared me. Right. And um, I can, I can remember that and kind of how it would come close and then go away and come close and go yeah, on your Kickstarter page, you have um, this little segment where you say that um, sound, the sound portion of making films gave you panic attacks because you, you just didn't know what to do there. So I'm kind of curious how this whole journey works from, you know, having panic attacks to yeah. uh, doing sound, teaching sound and making a film about yeah, sound. Um, so what happened was um, that I wanted to be an e I wanted to be a picture editor. And, and so I came out and I finished all my classes, except um, I had my thesis film left and I did a, doc, a short documentary that actually did pretty well. But I was working on that and um, I was I was an apprentice editor on a show and then I was an assistant editor. So I did a few shows like that and I needed money for my to finish my thesis. And a friend called me up who I knew him from film school. We had cut a film together. We had edited a picture you know, together. And he had become a sound editor. And he called me up one day and said, Midge, I can't, um, none of the union guys will touch 16 millimeter. And um, we, if you come in, I'll show you how to cut effects. And so I thought, so as I tell my students, I lowered myself and took a sound job because I needed the money. <laughs> and then when I got on that job, I was the only one cutting effects and he was cutting the dialogue. And I was thinking like, oh my God, how do I how do I um, kind of set the mood and the tone? I realized it was going to be important. And I started to really think about sound in terms of story. Whereas when I was at film school, it was just the thing I did at the end that seemed like a necessary evil to kind of smooth things over. And I wasn't catching the importance of it in terms of story. So then um, that, that, um, that picture editor, one of the picture editors that I had worked for called me up to ask me to take his place. And almost everything was done except for, I was just going to be cutting in the opticals. And I said, who's doing the sound? And he said, um, we don't know yet. And I said, I'll take the job if I can be supervising sound editor. <laughs> and I'd done like one and a half, you know, films as sound. And, um, 
And then just, it just took off from there and I just started to work. And I think because I had a music background, like I, I always sang in chorus and choir and I played the guitar. And, um, and the other thing is when I started to interview all the people, um, almost everybody had a tape recorder, like reel to reel when they were kids or some kind of, they went out. Mm-hmm. When I was in fifth grade, I asked for a tape recorder for Christmas and I got one of these little reel to reel kind of kids thing. And, um, and I would put on shows and all that stuff. So I realized, Oh yeah. You know, it's interesting. Walter Murch did something like between the ages of 11 and 14, whatever you do for play around then you might end up, that might be like your calling in life. And I thought that's really mm-hmm. interesting. So mm-hmm. then I started to see the importance of sound and, um, and then it was funny because when my thesis film came out, it did well. It made it to PBS, like a new director series and everything. But it was my, I was on my first um, big movie, um, like Hollywood movie. I was working on Days of Thunder. And I was getting calls from agents, you know. And I was like, you know what? I'm really happy doing sound. I, I had the... I had, you know, an important role. I had, like, the engine for the guy who was always racing against Tom Cruise and... It was new from mm-hmm. surround sound, and um, it was really kind of fun. So, so I just and then I just like have been super enthusiastic since I since the start. But I feel like because I was kind of born again, you know, sound person, where <laughs> it, you know I didn't think about it originally, and then it's like ah, nobody thinks about this, you know. So, and then I'm really happy to teach because I feel like that's what I was missing in school. Because I had, the guys who were teaching sound were a little bit more like engineer types. And um, Mm so it's fun to think about sound. And then you learn what you have to, you know, it's, um, you know, you can learn the technical stuff. But um, but I, I loved it once it became like part of story and character and, you know, mood and tone and all that. Once I got all that, then it was like, oh, this is really fun. Mm-hmm. Well, you worked on some of really the biggest movies of the 90s, like Armageddon and The Rock and, and yeah. well, Con Air. And, um, did, did you, when, you, when you watch those movies, um, can you pinpoint what you did, like you d- just did with Days of Thunder? Yes, I, yeah, I show, because um, well, I'll show those clips to my students. And so certain scenes, you know, and show them. Now they seem like really dated, you know. They're kind of fun. Well, the shows are because, I mean, the movies are, you know, because they're, you know, they're just so 90s. <laughs> but And it's one of the reasons I think I started to teach was I don't like action adventure movies. I'll go to like Marvel and things like that, certain ones. Like I like certain um, big, you know, shows like that. And sometimes I'll just go to hear the sound. But like I, lo- I loved um, Black Panther and Wonder Woman, and I think there's some really fun ones. Um, but but generally, I thought that they were kind of, they were so violent and kind of you know sexist and racist. And I, I at some point when they asked me to go up for a tenure position at the university, it was like yes, I can teach I can teach like young filmmakers, you know, how to use sound well, and hopefully they'll make better films than what I'm working on. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and actually one of my students the reason I got him in the film because he's so busy these days Ryan Coogler um, he took sound mm-hmm. um, before well, he directed for the first couple semesters of school and then he knew that he didn't know sound very well so he um, he did sound with me on a, um, in a class where uh, they make twelve a twelve minute film, and then he he was the he did all the production recording, the sound editing and sound design, and he and the mixing, and um, it's really cool that he did that, and uh, so he appreciates you know good sound. Mm-hmm. Do you notice that uh, these days with your students, and um, I assume most of them are young people, um, that there is more awareness of what sound can do. Um, in, in, like in comparison to the time when you were active in Hollywood? And- yeah, I, well, I think so. I like it at USC because we also sound like matters, you know, to, and that it's a big part of the program. Um, and, um, but I think they are because I think that they've had cameras in their hands, like their parents' phones. Um, I think they've had cameras in their hands since they were so little, like two years old, that they understand, you know, framing and color and light and all that stuff. And they, 
they don't know and they know that their production value is brought down by the sound so they really care about um you know so they're more interested in it i think you know but some sometimes they kind of to give lip service, but then they don't want to know it themselves, you know. And so I appreciate the directors who get into it or sit at the mi the whole mix and make sure that they understand sound better. But they're more of an interest, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, a friend of mine who's an who's an editor, I've worked with him a couple of times. He once said that you know people will forgive um, a bad shot and people will forgive things, you know, when if there's something wrong with a camera in a shot and, and you know, people will forgive a scene that is not edited very precisely, but they will never forgive um, bad sound. It's so true. I've heard people say a lot of people say that and it's 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 good that people know that. That's really true. I went to Korea to the DMZ um, doc festival and there was a woman who did this amazing very Fred Weissman like um, film and at the opening though there's wind in the mic and it was like oh man I can help you with that <laughs> and it's true you know it stands out as like wow we don't hear that usually you know that's unusual um, but it was a great film otherwise but I think that's true mm -hmm. it's hard to forgive that sound Yeah, I think one of the one of your interviewees mentions it in the film, right? And you say it's it's you don't want people to be like, huh? What did he say? Yeah, um, it takes you out of the story in a way. Yeah, Jessica says that about ADR. Yeah, I'm I'm curious about the um, how you selected the films that you discuss in your uh, in your documentary. Um, Was, because especially since you say that you don't really like um, the action and adventure films or not all of them. Yeah. Um, and I mean, a lot of the, the examples you give are, yeah. well, from that kind yeah. of material. Well, so. You know what happened is, um, because when, before, it, when I do, um, when, we, when I screen it anywhere outside of California, I have to say, this is, we intended to do an international, something about international, sound internationally in films, but it was really the budget that stopped us from, and, The, the budget stopped us from doing international. So we got a lot of people in California. And then even the New Yorkers, we didn't get many. Like Martin Scorsese didn't agree, Spike Lee, uh, the Coen brothers. You know, there were a lot of people that we could have interviewed. And it really ended up, who, what directors did we get? And um, and so it's, you know, it's a very much a kind of California story or Hollywood or something story. And in Northern California, who was outside of, you know, Hollywood. But... That was part of it, who we, who actually agreed to be in the film. And um, and then I think because the bigger films, the bigger kind of action-adventure movies are the ones that cared about sound, they put the money into the budget, and um, like Star Wars, you know, and uh, but even, you know, films like, you know, Star is Born or, um, you know, it was like who cared about sound. So Hitchcock and Orson Welles early on. Mm -hmm. um, but then it really, a lot of stuff got pushed by like, you know, Spielberg and, you know, Pixar and, um, you know, George Lucas gave Ben Burt so much time, you know, on Star Wars. So a lot of it was where, and Walter Murch, because those guys leaving Southern California to do it their own way, that was a huge breakthrough. That's what we saw as like, well, that was a huge breakthrough in here. And then we just couldn't extend it to, uh, you know, international. I mean, we've got, you know, some, some people, but um, yeah, we just like, we just didn't have the budget to, to do that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, I missed some of the international um, things because you have some, you know, at some point, I can't remember who says it, but I said, well, I watched the, the Godard film Breathless and, um, you noticed that they were breaking rules and, and like, okay, well, I would like to know more about that. Yes. But, yeah. You know, it's I, more of a focus on America, but still. Yeah. And that was, um, that was because Walter Murch studied in, um, uh, studied in, in France's junior year. And, um, he definitely was influenced. He didn't like movies, you know, until he got there. And then when he saw that, he liked, he liked, um, yeah, the French new wave. And so that was really a huge um, influence. And actually, if you listen to them, you can hear where he got the idea of like that whole train, you know, the, the subway train coming through at the Godfather. Um, that was mm -hmm. cool. So it's kind of interesting when you look at the film, it's kind of like a large focus of that is on the new Hollywood era with, you know, filmmakers like Spielberg and Lucas and Robert Altman. Um, 
and the new Hollywood era is, is one of my favorite eras in film, actually. But people never talked about the sound, except maybe for Star Wars. Yeah. I mean, that's but that's just because Star Wars is such a phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but your film is kind of like a, a history of new Hollywood of how yeah. it also changed filmmaking on a very different level. Yeah. Yeah, because even when I was working in Hollywood in the 80s, when I started, we still had libraries that had optical sound in them. Like there was this one we all called Yellow Sky Wind. <laughs> I don't know if you guys had it there, but we all used to, and it was optically recorded. That's how old these libraries were. So, you know, it was really took the new Hollywood to get out and could do their own recordings. One of the reasons they left is um, so that they could do it their own way because um, Richard Anderson, who's the guy who's friends with Ben Byrne at film school, and then he did like Raiders of the Lost Ark and um, Star Trek and different things. When they were trying to do things for the first Star Trek, um, they weren't allowed to record their own. He heard like this great air conditioning. He knew he could make it, you know, slow it down and make it sound great for you know, the Enterprise or something. And he wasn't allowed to record because he was a sound editor. And there were very strict rules about what you could do. So that was part of, you know, Walter Murch and George Lucas and um, Coppola moving north. And I think that breaking. So, you know, and so, some of this, I mean, that's why making waves, it's like, you know, doing something different. And I hope that it, it I, I think about my students and I think, I hope that they, think about that in terms of sometimes you got to break out you know and be something mm -hmm. different and it pays off you know that was a whole new wave for yeah american films and um sound mattered and that's what made a difference you know as field mm -hmm. this too like his whole generation they were interested in sound and that was interesting in doing the research a lot of it was because the music they were hearing music like the music quality was much better than than movies and so we're into like the music and the Beatles and all of that stuff. I mean, when rock and roll comes up and, you know, music was sounding way better than the movies were still mono. That blew my mind to think that Walter Murch, Richard Biggs and Mark Berger, who, who mixed um, uh, Apocalypse Now, they had only worked on mono, including The Godfather. You know, everything was mono up until that time for, for the average film. You know, for the average, like, sound person, they were working on mono. And some of the, you know, and of course, they were doing multi-tracks in the 50s and stuff. Like, we're totally aware of that. But we wanted to say generally what was happening in movies. Um, so it wasn't until uh, Francis Ford Coppola said that about, oh, he heard that quad track, you know, with um, Tomita. And um, he said, I want my movie to sound like this. And what cracked me up, but we... You know, the movie, I just wanted to make it 90 minutes. I believe that's the human attention span. And so uh, we cut, but we had great stuff. Like Francis really thought that, Francis Ford Coppola thought they were going to have they'd take this movie, they'd put it in the center of the country, like Kansas, like it would be the Baseball Hall of Fame or Disney World. And people would have to come to that theater to hear surround sound. And <laughs> you know, it would be like this big event that you would go to to hear surround sound. Instead, it became the norm. I mean, it took a while, but it became, you know, that's what, like we were cutting to by the 80s, you know. So, yeah, it it, it took off, but who knew? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I sometimes got the impression that you needed to leave stuff on the on the cutting room floor um, because also some of the some of the people you interview um, just have a you know a few sentences in there, um, just a few moments. I know. And I thought, well, every I think every one of these people, like Christopher Nolan or Ryan Coogler, I'm sure they have hours of stories yeah. to tell. Yeah, yeah. and those guys we don't have as much, but oh my god, all the sound people have so much. I mean, we did. I mean, I mean, George Lucas, I probably have a three hour interview with, and um, yeah, it was crazy. It was great, you know. And um, but yeah, and Ryan is definitely longer. He talks about other things. It was we were trying to figure out where to put him exactly, and. Um, and so it was like, yeah, but um, the, yeah, there's so much great stuff. But, you know, we're, we're telling, 
I, I knew that I just wanted to do this 90 minute thing. And so we let, we had to take a lot of stuff out. Like Tom, Tom Holman was in there a lot longer, but like people like Richard King and, um, uh, Karen Baker Landers and Per Halberg's not, Per Halberg's not even in there. Um, Ren Kleiss, you know, like there's a lot of great sound people that didn't make in a, you know, we had things cut scenes cut with them and we had to cut them out. But, um, I knew that once we finished this film, I'd be like, oh, I can't look at this anymore. So we got, I hired assistant editors and they did avid timelines of every interview. And we also have transcripts. So it's archived really well because I could, we couldn't find anything. We can hardly find anything from the first generation of sound people. And even in Hollywood, there's not, they didn't document you know the sound very much so we barely could find stuff thank god there was that interview with um uh murray spivak for king kong mm -hmm. you know and um but he was like the only one really and it's really sad that there wasn't much so i thought i gotta i gotta get these people now because we're like the second generation you know that's it so i feel like we documented it well at least out here you know because they would just come to they could just come to uh to where I teach USC and I'd get them at, you know, in the sound stages there. And, uh, so I got, yeah, a lot of great, great stuff. Um, I can almost imagine, um, if somebody wanted to do, you know, a series or whatever, it'd be really easy to do that, to get into more detail and a lot more stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was hard to leave so many things behind. So with, with so much stuff, um, how did you find your way through all that kind of material? How did you decide what yeah. to leave out and what to focus yeah, on? Yeah, one of the things is once we got like the directors, because we knew that that would kind of interest people more, you know. So what we did is we would do th we would do scenes around the directors and the movies. Now, because of fair use and being able to use the um, movies, I had to know which films I wanted to talk about and which scenes so they could talk about them and set them up. So legally we could use them. So once we got like directors and we'd start to do the scenes with them, that's one of the ways we did it. So we had these nice long scenes sometimes. And then, uh, and I was working with the editor and um, we'd get these great scenes and my producing partners would put their note, you know, give their notes. And then we had a really long, much longer um, thing with Saving Private Ryan with River Runs Through It. Um, Star Wars, a lot longer. Um, the other, oh, uh, the music concrete and and stuff that was going there mm -hmm. um, with Walter. Um, so we had these like long things, and then as we started to put them together, I, I I asked a colleague of mine, Tom Miller, is our supervising editor, and he did a great job of like you know it's you know as we say here, killing your babies, and so, mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how to cut it down and yeah it, it was hard because we had everybody talking about like what you asked me what was the first sound they remember but we did um what's a child what's the sound from your childhood and then gary reinstrom used to ask this question to people and bobette i had at the end of my interviews bobette buster my producing partner would would ask um if you could have a photograph or a recording of someone that you love what would you want and inevitably, people would cry about, you know, saying who it was that they kind of missed or something. And it was really beautiful. It was a really nice thing. And um, so there's just so much material there. But so many people talked about their films. We kind of, you know, documented, um, yeah, Hollywood and kind of Northern California. And, and there were some great interviews in New York, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that some of the material will find its way on, you know, maybe the, the DVD or into, as you say, maybe a series or anything. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, it deserves it. I always find it interesting to hear people talk about, um, you know, their profession um, in, in a way that makes you appreciate what they do. And I think this is a perfect example of this because you you learn so much about what they're doing and you also hear how much they care about what they're doing. Yes, right. I know that's cool. Um, yeah, I really wanted to do that because, you know, my, the sound people, the people that I worked with, I feel like they're my family out here because my family is really back in Boston. So on the East coast, so they, they these were just really close friends. And, and um, when you work so closely with people, 
you know, when you all kind of grow up together and, you know, there's marriages and kids and, you know, um, you know, things like that, you know, you go to weddings and you go to funerals and together and all of that, like you get to know people really well. I just love these people. I know how dedicated they are and how much they love their job and how much they care. And like, there was a really good thing. A friend of mine is a dialogue editor, Karen Spangenberg. She said, and we had this in the movie at one point, we talked about this more. She says, um, you know, it doesn't matter what the film is, whether I work on, and she worked on both, uh, Ernest Goes to Camp or Amadeus. I do the same work. You know, I do, I take it seriously and, and do the same job, do the same, you know, good job. It doesn't, doesn't matter. And uh, so that's kind of cool to just hear about that. And because I teach, and, uh, and because, because I teach and, and teach young filmmakers, it's like they have to understand that, you know, that, First of all, it's like you have to know whose film it is, and it's usually the director's, um, and that it's not your film. And also, it's not sound for sound's sake. It's sound for how does it work with the picture. And you have to understand the long hours that we put in and, and all of that. So I, I think that that's as important, teaching that stuff as, as, as much as the skills. Um, so I really want to put that in the movie, too. Mm -hmm. So you, you talk a lot in, in the film about the circle of talent. Um which I think is a, is a beautiful image. I think for, for film production in general, um, not just for sound, but also like all the other departments are um, sort of all play together to yeah. you know, perform one thing um, in a way. Um, but I'd like to talk about the individual roles in the circle of talent. And um, well, maybe you can tell me about the, um, the creative role of these people um, as opposed to like you said in, in earlier times they were more of engineers um, right. but the creative role of them and the challenges that they yeah. that they meet um, so there's the the production uh, the recordist the yeah. person who records sound on set and from my experience on a set nobody ever listens to the man or the, the woman who records sound on the set <laughs> right and it's like you'll wait for hours and hours while they set up the lights and the lighting and how is it looking and all this stuff and then it's like oh, okay and then they don't give any rehearsals like for sound and they ask for a rehearsal and they just say something and it's like oh waiting on sound i mean it's a joke on the set right so you get so much, such a hard time. Um, and I taught with Doug Vaughn, who's in there, who talks about the microphone is only like 10, 10 inches from someone at, someone's mouth and how intimate it is. And he used to just teach, like, I mean, the creativity comes in. How, how should they sound, you know, and what's the perspective and how can you how can you get it and how can you get it to sound good and get in there? And also the mixers used to be really great on those um, on those shows. Now they're just like, I think they just have everybody a body mic on everybody so that you just make sure that you can hear it. But there is something to, you know, a boom always sounds better because it sounds more like how we hear, you know, it records more like how we hear mm -hmm. and it gives the per real perspective. So, I mean, I think that that's the creativity, but also what Doug taught was how to influence people on the set when you don't have that much, um, uh, you don't have that much power. And so it's becoming friends with the, with the DP or the cameraman, right? And um, and then also, you know, with the assistant director. So it's it's like really interesting, but it's really about making sure. And always, like he would say, you know, it's take out his territory uh, to make sure that he didn't get lit out of a shot or something. So you stay around. So that's. But it's so. What people forget is how intimate that is. That on the set, you're really that is the performance. So you do all this stuff, and it's like the performance. Um, is really their voice right so that's like what you know it's kind of like it's just so key so we make sure that that you know that you're getting the voice I mean I think that that's it and also if you can ever be there for you know location scouting or something and then the uh, because I, I I was an effects editor but I was also a dialogue editor then when you're dialogue editing you're trying to save that performance that original performance so you don't have to do ADR and the creativity in that is problem solving. I think it's like you're trying to get the, you try to get it to sound right, sound clean. And a lot of times, like someone will step on someone's line, and then you didn't use that other take, so you have to find like S's. And I don't know if you've done sound editing work, but you know, and, and sometimes you just replace like a syllable. 
and just to make it clearer or you stretch something out and it's like, you know, so it's really detailed work and it's really trying to preserve that original performance. And then if you don't get the original performance, now you're into ADR and really the director should be there directing them in the ADR stage. But if not, the ADR supervisor is doing that. And then they're also supervising any kind of background people, you know, and doing the loop group as we call it. Or, um, so that's like a whole thing of like, it's like kind of being the assistant director on the set will sometimes do the crowd shots and all that, you know, wrangle people. Mm-hmm. And the supervising ADR editor is doing that for the sound. And, um, you know, with a loop group, you know, director or something. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of that. And I, I love I love cutting both. When, I have, when I'm working on a movie, I like to both cut dialogue and effects because you, then you know the scene, like, really well. You're given, like, you know, a reel, and like, like, you know, 20 minutes or 40 minutes or, or the whole movie. But, you're, but if you do both of those, which isn't done now very much, it's usually on big shows, it's like a dialogue editor is separate. And then, but what's great about that is you know, you know it so intimately, all the dialogue and everything. So, um, and then effects is, like, so much about, you know, you're thinking – well, if you're doing like back ambiences and you're thinking how to set the mood and the tone so that it, I, I consider the ambience like the back, the music to every scene, but it's subtle, but it's setting the mood and tone just like music does, but it's so much more subtle. Like it's not, you know, music brings attention to itself a little bit. It can, if it's not done mm-hmm. right emotionally, if it's a little bit off, like it, you become aware of it, but back, but putting ambiences in you can do a lot and then um you know then effects it's like that's such big like plot point emotion uh off you can do so much with off-screen stuff um that it's really i mean that's really where the creativity comes in for sound design sometimes but sometimes it's just the sound of something and how you layer it and how you want to affect the audience so you're constantly thinking you know and hopefully you get the script so that you can start because it takes a while, you know, it takes a while to think, like, what do you need? And even the, I think the best sound designers, they actually go out and are recording their own stuff, you know? And um, I, when I was talking to Eric Adol, who did like Argo and he does all of Michael Bay stuff. He does all the Transformer movies, but he also does all Malick's movies. So he's got this, like, you know, he can do, he can do anything. And, um, but, you know, you start to just think about like what, what is this? What are the themes, and what are the plot points? You know that I need to put sound. What should those sound like? And you really need time to think about it, not just slap something on. And um, so that's really key. And then there's nothing more important or more emotional than music. And if you don't get that right, you know, because we say in sound, it's like sound is always going to make it better. In le- but music can screw it up. We usually mm-hmm. screw it up, and you know. It's so usually you're making it better, you're making it fuller, you're making it, you know, everything sound a little bit better because you're really just going for the voice on the set. But music, if you screw that up, man, you can screw up a movie. Like sometimes it's just too much music or it's too, what did I just see recently? It might have been, I was at a film festival, I was a juror in Belgium. And just sometimes I felt, I could feel like, oh, this music is more emotional than I really feel. So it's kind of, Mm. you know, sappy or, you know, too sweet. And it, it shouldn't be that, you know, it took me out of the movie. Um, but music is so key, but you've got to bring the audience to an emotional point and then you can just really rip their heart out you know? mm-hmm. <laughs> with music uh, emotionally. Yeah. There's nothing. I don't think there's anything stronger. You mentioned that in the film, that music in earlier movies, you know, you had almost wall to wall music all the time. And I think these days, I sometimes see that coming back. Um, I know. And it's not so much noticeable music, but it, especially, for example, horror films. Um, you have this you know, permanent a- ambient music, you know, just drones and screeches and everything. But it's it's on every scene and, and throughout the entire movie and just loses its power completely after 10 minutes. Right, completely. That's what they don't get is like... If you, I mean, I teach students that all the time because we do shorts. And so I just say, the composer is going to find it really easy to just score this all the way through and it's going to lose its effect. So the most important thing, and I heard Elmer Bernstein, the great composer, I heard him um, talk about this in a class at USC. And he said, the most important thing that I 
hear from a director is where are the ins and where are the outs? Not the mm -hmm. style, not the instrumentation. It's really where's the in point and the out point. And, and they need to know that. And there need to be out points. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. There are some big filmmakers, and I can't mention them because it would be some of our <laughs> biggest sound designers. Like, they've taken their names off of some films as sound designer because of uh, they felt they weren't listened to. And the director was, uh, you know, just, I think, just used music. Because um, I was asking some of them, could we go on the, could we get in the mixed stage and, you know, be with you? And it was like, um, not, well, you know what? I'd rather not. And they were pissed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. It really depends. You know what? It's so much about the director. What does the director want, you know? And what does the director know about sound? So it's so disappointing when, you know, a good director will then do that with, yeah, music. I wanted to talk a little bit about the sound design of your film, too, yeah. which is a kind of meta sound design. Yeah. Um, so I've, I've, I found that interesting because, you know, you have a documentary on sound design and I'm sure you spent a lot of time on the sound of that film, too. What's really noticeable at the end of the film, where you would expect music to set in and you have all the ambient sounds. I love that. <laughs> I was actually hoping to, to, to see that all the way through the end credits. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, that was great. Yes. Um, but just the, the, the opening segment, for example, I think that's almost like a mini version of everything you talk about in your film, right? Um, with all the elements coming together yes. to tell that story. Yes. Um, yeah, and you know, sometimes I still watch it and I think, I used to have, I pulled stuff, I wanted to do stuff from like my childhood, and at one point I had somebody diving off a diving board and, and splashing into a pool, and I did a lot of swimming when I was a kid, and, and then sometimes I wonder, oh, maybe we should have kept that. I think it's a little bit there, but we pulled it way down, but um, you know, that, the opening really comes from Walter Murch, um, that an article, you know, that he wrote, Stretching the Sound to Help the Mind See. And I read that in the 90s when I was in the middle of, like, you know, doing all the big shows that I was working on. And uh, that blew my mind. And that it was that kind of thing, like, I didn't think about, like, why why is it that people don't know what we do and why is it that no one, but why we, we, we know <laughs> that it matters. No one else does. And I just love that. So... Um, I love that opening. And, and then I used former students of mine, um, uh, Kim Patrick and uh, Bai Wei Yang, who both left school after they graduated, they got internships with um, Randy Tom up at Skywalker. And, um, and so they've been up at Skywalker, you know, working on, on features and stuff. And I wanted to give them an opportunity, you know, to be supervising sound editors. They've done other shows uh, by ways from, Beijing and she's been doing some Chinese shows that she'll bring to Skywalker. So yeah, I, I wanted um, them to be supervising sound editor. And I have to confess that I did not want to do the thing of give it to them at the last minute, but I could have given them a lot more time. They were really busy too, but um, but yeah, but I I it's you know it's like it's really intimidating to um, to do sound on a show about. <laughs> you know what I feel like gets, um, and I don't know if you want to talk about more about the sound design, but I feel like what is underestimated a lot is also uh, Alison Newman's score because she's got to go, she's got to weave in and out all those incredible scores, you know, with John Williams, mm -hmm. Zimmer, and all the stuff, and it's like, and I think she did a great job emotionally, and um, you know, and just like the same thing with the sound design, we don't want it to be over the top or it can't get in the way of other things, but. You know, I think that it's um, it's done well, but I think it's it's almost it's so it comes across almost as subtle or it's too subtle. So a lot of people don't pick. Mm. Never ask me about the sound design and the, and the movie itself. So it's interesting mm -hmm. you bring it up. Yeah, I thought it it, it conveyed a, a sense of wonder. I think that was the the, the general idea is with the music, but also the the way that just the the quality of the sounds always a sense of wonder on you know this particular thing we're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was fun. And like when we talked to, when we introduced like the different characters, like on Gary Rydstrom's, it's really the sound, what kind of made his career was um, the the Luxo Jr., that light, you know, for Pixar. Mm -hmm. So we have those little sounds to kind of introduce his character. You can hear those in there. And we tried to do that, like do something iconic for, 
Walter, Gary, and Ben, and um, and then they all, all have themes, themes too. There were you know themes for each of them, and um, that was really fun, you know, to work on those ideas. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I'll um, I'll pay attention to that when I watch it a second time. <laughs> those things that like because we do that, like I tell my students too. It's like we have themes, but you don't have to know what the themes are. It's just that it helps us when we're doing, you know, when creating. It's like you know. It, they shouldn't stand out as like, oh, this is, you know, but um, but that's what really helps when you kind of analyze the script in terms of what could be the sound themes, you know, for it. Mm. And, uh, and it, it gives you a way to kind of organize and start thinking creatively about things. And so we did the same thing with the music. I mean, Allie was, came up with themes that, you know, tried to capture who they are. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think in a way it always, it helps when, sound design doesn't pay uh, like doesn't uh, bring attention to itself um, like I think it's not supposed to be noticed um, no. it, it just works um, yeah. just it, it sort of gently takes you by the hand yeah. and through the film while you're watching and listening to what people are saying and processing the information and everything yeah I agree and it's like when we work on a show too it's like you know I'll, we'll like look at the we'll look at the film and then you go and you pull things together and you record things, you get things from libraries and then you, it's like, Oh, this is the perfect sound. This is going to be great for that thing. Now I'm not looking at the picture at the time. And then I, but then you always like, you'll gather like a few different ones and decide, but you're I was just, I would just be so sure oh, this is going to be perfect. And you put it up against picture and it's like, uh, no, it's not that one. It's this fifth alternate that I got. <laughs> and it has to work with the picture. You know, it's not sound for sound sake. It's got to work with the picture. And there's some kind of alchemy that happens that you just never know what it's going to be. Mm -hmm. um, there's another theme in the film, which is, um, it's also kind of subtle, but it's there. And I, I very much enjoyed that. It's seeing so many women um, in that field. And I don't remember her name. I think she, she was the one who worked on Braveheart. Um, and um, Belmar. Belmar, yeah. Belmar. Um, where she said, "Well, why do you have to be a man to to uh, do a war movie?" You right. know, I mean, right? Yeah, I thought that was a well, very good theme to see. Um, you know, just the, this very slight, yeah. let, let's call it a feminist yeah. Yeah. statement in yeah. a way. How does the industry like these days, also with your students, um, how does it compare to maybe twenty years ago? Yeah, um, you know, it's it feels to me like it hasn't changed enough, but what, um, why I wanted to do it was like, I was one of the few women in Hollywood who was cutting effects. And what happens is when you cut effects versus dialogue or Foley, it's usually the effects editors who are supervising sound editors. Okay. So they, that's why we have, you know, more, there are more men who are, because more men were cutting the effects. And it was like, I would see it in my own career. Like, um, I worked with George Waters, supervising sound editor, George Waters, a lot on films. And at first I was just an effects, I was an effects editor. I learned to cut dialogue. And when I, once I could cut dialogue, George would say, hey, if, if we were doing like a really big film, then sometimes you'd split up one, you know, certain people will do the dialogue editing, certain will do the effects. So when, sometimes he'd say, um, you know, I'd come in and he'd say, this is what the schedule is and all that. And he goes, and oh, I think I'll have you cut dialogue. And then I would say, well, George, if I'm just going to cut one, I think that I'd rather cut effects. And then I'd see his brain work like, okay, let's see. She worked on Broken Arrow. And she did, yeah, she did that scene. That was pretty good. And then it would be like, oh, okay. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's this kind of stereotypical thing of like dialogue editing is very detailed. It's very, you need to be patient, you know, and you don't get a lot of um, recognition. And so, unfortunately, I feel like it just, in people's minds, that's better for women. And, like, I, like it really, when I was a little kid, my sister and I wanted to be race car drivers. But nobody thinks about women like, like liking race cars. Wow. And here I was on my first big movie. I was doing a race car, which was great. You know? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, as, as Anna says, that's what's so funny about shooting to Braveheart because nobody's been in that kind of war, you know. <laughs> and um, so they're really funny. So I did want to mention it because it's still, there's too much um, of a discrepancy still. People will say it's better. Like we've had panels after the screenings where I've had um, Lai Ling Lee and CeCe Hall and everyone says it's better, which it is because CeCe Hall talks about 
Um, she was the only one at Paramount with Kay Rose, who's in there. Vicky, Vicky Sampson, Vicky Rose Sampson is in the movie too. And I worked with her and I knew her mother, Kay Rose. Um, but, um, yeah, Kay, it was just Kay, Vicky and Cece in the seventies. Like there weren't any other women. And Kay was the only one there in the fifties, the only woman. And she was the first woman to win an Academy Award. And Laura Hirschberg, who's in the movie, was the first woman to win a, an Academy Award for mixing. And she did, it was for Inception. She also did Dark Knight, and she's done amazing. She's done amazing films, as Anna has, too. And, um, yeah, so I, I really wanted to put something in. I We only had 90 minutes, and I, there's a lot more of that. But I just thought, to touch on it, to say something. But, but um, how I got people in, how I got women in the movie was... I had, everyone got interviewed. And if you were sound, there's a black background to you. And uh, just kind of bring a little gravitas to, you know, and weightiness to these people. And um, and have their credits kind of stand out. But then the, when I went to do Verite stuff, people working, it was, I got more women than I got. I got, a, it's almost all women. It's like, Anna is the mix, is mixing. I've got uh, Terry Ecton. And Gwen Whittle editing, Eileen Lee is editing and mixing. And um, so it was a lot of Allison Moore, but also John Resch are doing Foley. And so I got a lot of women when we went back to do kind of editing and mixing. I used women. So we just have more of their faces on the screen and more time with them. Mm -hmm. And then I used like CeCe Hall for the, I could have used so many different people decided to use Top Gun and CeCe Hall for that so that people could see a woman talking about you know, a big effects show. Yeah, I didn't know that Top Gun actually used um, the animal sounds. That was that was interesting. <laughs> When you go to movies, do you listen to them a lot, or do you find yourself, you know, just um, sort of? Well, my question is sort of: Can can you turn that yeah. off? Can you just? Yes, I, I think watch that, the movie. Yeah, I get that asked a lot by students because they worry when they when they're in class and they they if they take sound that they're worried that they're they're not gonna be able to enjoy movies <laughs> anyway i love movies i love going to the movies i love because i love the immersive environment and i don't i will know if something's really really good or really really bad i will notice but usually because as you say we don't want to take you out of the movies so usually they it doesn't and i have to actually if i love a movie i'll get the blu-ray or look at it again and And then really pay attention to the sound, but I just get mm -hmm. to the story. And so if I like a story, I figured they've probably done pretty good sound on it. Um, and then, I, but I have to go back and like watch it again to see um, because I just love movies. And so when it's done well, as you say, it's like it works with the picture and it doesn't doesn't make itself aware. You're not aware of it because I do work in sound. I will think sometimes I'll just flash on it, but it, it doesn't really take me out so much. It's just have a little bit more consciousness, you know, than most people. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I, I just love movies. Sometimes I go, Oh my God, I have no idea. Like people will ask me, how was the sound? It's like, I have no idea. <laughs> but yeah. That's yeah, interesting. I know a couple of people who just, you know, they, they focus on their really field of specialty. Yeah. So, you know, if you, your projection designer and then all they watch is the production design yeah. of the movie and it's almost, you know, not important what the story is or what the characters are. It's just they keep watching the interior. <laughs> so I thought, okay, well, that's um, <laughs> kind of strange, but hey. Yeah, no, I love, I love movies. Yeah. Um, do you know the movie Lisbon Story by Wim Wenders? Oh, gosh. You know, I don't. The yeah, um, the, the German director who yeah. made Paris, Texas. Yeah, yeah, I know him well, and I. But you know what? I don't think I saw that Lisbon story. I gotta write that down. I remember. Um, yeah, I know the title, and of course, I know him well. But yeah, yeah, because that is a, a, a movie about the appreciation of sound. It's a it's a sound designer who comes to to uh, Portugal to Lisbon to Lisbon to help a, f a fellow filmmaker with his film. Um, he's shooting a silent film there. Um, and the filmmaker is gone, but he finds the material. And so he sort of starts exploring the city through sound. He just, you know, walks through Lisbon and, and, and you know, records the streets and the, the the cars and everything and talks to people. And 
it's a very very much an art house film so it doesn't have a lot of plot but it's just in terms of you know the appreciation of sound um it's a movie i saw when i i don't know was 18 or something and it just opened up a whole new world for me yeah. so uh that's it's a, just a recommendation and i was always waiting yes. when i saw the film that maybe there would be a mention or a scene from that so yeah there were so many like um delicatessen and there were some things that would have been really fun to put in we actually we did have some international films and then yeah we just pared it down Thank you.